All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good time of praising the Lord. Amen. Amen. If you would turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2, that's what I want. Chapter 1, verse 2. Why don't we pray? Father in, in heaven, we just come before you. We desire to be used. We desire that you would use us for your glory. We pray, Father, that we would be a conduit of grace, that folks would know who Jesus is, that they would be saved, that uh, believers would grow in Christ. That's all our desire is that they would know your word, but they would know Christ more deeply, know your son more intimately because he died on the cross for our sins. I pray even this morning that we would focus on what he's done and how he desires to use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful to have a communion Sunday, and this rain is here. In First Thessalonians chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, excuse me, uh, we will be going through the text that um, Brother Andre read. Now, when we desire not to just be as RBC, Redeemer Bible Church, we have our church membership, we have uh, our various activities that we're doing, our outreaches, but our heart and our desire as a church is not to simply just be us uh, being an ingrown type of church. We desire to reach out. We desire to share the gospel with others. We desire to share the truth of Christ and how he has saved us with other people. Now, at times we would look at each other and we would think, uh, how and how are we going to do this? How does God do this? How does God use a people? How will he bring folks to salvation? What kind of people does he bring? What are the conditions? Are there conditions? Is there a formula? Can we prepare people to be saved? Is there something that we could do? Is there a certain methodology? Well, what, in this scripture, God gives us, Paul gives us, uh, identifying marks, characteristics of a people of God who are used greatly for his kingdom. It is a characteristic marks of a people of God who are used to reach out to others. What kind of people does God use? In other words, the title of this message is, when does God move? How does he move? What kind of people does he use? Uh, let me read the text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always, uh, always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Verse 4, he says this amazing verse. He says, 
knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We know that in Matthew, Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe that I, all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that to be the great commission of Christ. Why? Because apart from Christ, there is no salvation. Apart from Christ, there is no gospel. Apart from Christ, no one can be saved. And he tells us to go. So the question now becomes, as, we are, as you evaluate yourself and evaluate our lives, how do you know that Great Commission work is actually happening? How do you know that? How do you know it's not just us getting together as a club? How do you know that we're actually doing the will of God, actually doing the Great Commission work? I think this is a crucial question. We can spend all our resources and all our efforts on extra-biblical, non-life-changing, non-soul-saving gospel work, per se. How do you know if you're doing it? How do you know if the people we support are doing it? Is there criteria? Or is that being too judgmental? How do you know when God God gave this passage to you this morning so that we would be RBC, so that you would be an authentic, gospel-centered, great commission-following, disciple-making, missions-minded, outreach-having church. That's a, long, um, that's a long preaching point. And in our class that we've been teaching, I told people not to do that. I'm breaking the rules today. Why? Because this is all-encompassing of the work that we do. And I'm making a point. Are we going to sim simply be a church who only cares for one another and is ingrown? Or are we going to be, and we're going to excel still more? This is not saying I am not diminishing any of the efforts that we have done. This is an excel still more. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep reaching out. Can we be that gospel-centered Great commission of following, disciple-making, missions-minded, outreach-having church. The Apostle Paul was all about the gospel. In this letter, Paul is absolutely, unequivocally sure that what occurred in Thessalonica was, in fact, a work of God in the hearts of the local church to expand the reach of the gospel. We want to be there, and I believe that this is exactly what God is doing here. So as our minds and our hearts are focused, God is going to use us even more. 
But how do we know what kind of church does God use? Well, there are three characteristics of the authentic, gospel-centered, Great Commission following, disciple-making, missions-minded, outreach-having church. How will you be used of God in this? There's three characteristics. Three characteristics. Number one, serve the body faithfully. Serve the body faithfully. When God gets a hold of his people, they desire to serve. When God gets a hold of his people, they know that they no longer live for themselves. They know that if they serve Christ at any capacity because of his rich sacrifice for them, they know that their life given a thousand times over could not repay. And so they do it simply because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how, G, uh, how Paul talks about the Thessalonians. He talks about what happens in their hearts. It's not simply a profession in their lips. It's not simply, I just say this, now I'm a Christian. I think that's where people get confused. It is a life-changing, life-altering, radical orientation of the way someone conducts their life. And you notice he says here, their faithful service. And he uses three different terms. What draws Paul to give thanks to God? Because number one, he knows that the ultimate reason why people serve, why people follow, is God himself. God himself shows up. Are there many? Can you turn on the ACs? I'm getting hot. Yeah, because I, I, I'm kind of getting, getting hot here. Maybe it's too much coffee. I don't know. But what happens here is that there are three terms that God calls people. He characterizes them the way they serve. And you notice he says there, he says first, the work of faith. The work of faith. He says, I give thanks. What always drives me, he says in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work. What gets on his mind, what causes him to praise God, what gets him to thank God is what he is doing in people's lives. And this is, I praise God for you guys every day. Every day. In, I praise God that what he is doing, in, I know it's not something we can conjure up. We can't create this. It's not a formula. I know that God is doing this. But it is a beautiful thing when someone says, you know, I'm going to give up my time. I'm going to give up my resources. I'm going to give up these things for the glory of God. And he calls it first. What happens is the people are dedicated to. He calls these three different terms. A work of faith. A work of faith. Now the work there are good deeds. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They are deeds. They are actions that are done. By the motivation of Christ. In the power of Christ. For the good of others. And to express love for them. That's what a good deed is. And what he says is this work or this deed of faith is first initiated, has its groundwork in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you cannot work until you have this faith. You understand? And so what Paul is talking about is when someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't, she doesn't, the, doesn't want to stay idle. 
he or she understands the implications on them. That their life is no longer theirs. That they no longer live for simply pleasure. They no longer live for simply amusement. They no longer simply live for all the things that they want to do. They have a new master. My life has been changed. And now I want to do good deeds. I want to serve others. I want to serve Christ. I want to serve the body. So he has a work of faith. Sec- uh, the, uh, the second phrase that is called that is mentioned about how someone serves the body faithfully. It is described as a labor of love. So the work of faith is the basis, okay? He uses that term, and he's using, it's almost like he's taking the diamond of Christian service, and he's rotating it around to see the beauty, the glory of how God does, what God does when he changes someone. He calls it first the work of faith, and then he says the labor of love. What God has done in someone's life is that they now have this labor of love. Now, this is a phrase that the world has taken from us. You hear it, uh, oh, uh, you know, I make surfboards, it's my labor of love. Or, you know, I, I produce gold records, that's my labor of love, or something like that. That is, has nothing to do with the way the phrase is used in the Bible. The way the phrase is used in the Bible has a specific usage. It's serving the body of Christ in such a way that it's, that it is, um, well, let's look at the phrase here. The word there, labor, means sometimes it's translated trouble. The word there for labor means exhausting physical or mental exertion. Exhausting physical or mental exertion. It also means toil hard work it's even translated bother in luke chapter 11 when the neighbor is knocking on the door and it's it's translated as a bother okay bother sometimes it's difficult the physical mental exertion and then the word there for love is the same word for agape that word agape is a love of the object irrespective of any return It is, I love the person, I love Christ, and I love this body, whether or not I get any benefits back. And so if we put the two phrases together, here's what he's saying. He says, for the body of Christ, what marks an individual who serves and loves Jesus is that they would allow, I would allow myself to be exhausted. I would allow myself to be mentally and physically spent for my fellow believers in Christ. And you know, if you've been in ministry for any number of years or for a couple of years, you know that ministry work is very, very difficult. Ministry work, uh, the mental capacity that is stretched as you study a text and prepare a lesson, Uh, emotional strain that it takes to disciple others when you are going with them with uh, through their problems see it's very easy to be guarded from one another it's very easy to not invest in the lives of others it's very easy to not mesh in discipleship with one another but what God calls us to do is help each other carry each other's burdens and what he says is When you sign up for this, it will be exhausting, physically tiring, 
And, he's, and Paul is saying, I know that this is what you desire to do. What's glorious and what's fantastic is you give yourself to this kind of work. Brothers and sisters, I'm encouraged. I see each of you and I know you're working and what you're doing. And I'm encouraged of the service that you give to him and how you minister to the body and how you love the body. Let's excel still more. Amen. Amen. Excel still more. Thirdly, he uses a phrase, steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope. This means that you would persevere, you would endure. That in Christ, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, you would continue in hoping on God. You would hold on to hope in the presence of our God and Father. Um, We mentioned that Brother Nilo is here. Uh, is coming, and I remember he was telling me about one charlatan uh, over there in the Philippines. What he would do is he would live in a big house in the Philippines. He would say he's serving, and he would say to uh, he would take go to the local elementary school, take pictures, and then report back and say, "Hey, I'm running an orphanage. Look at all the kids that I'm serving. Look at all the kids that I'm." helping and see that all all the while what he's doing is just sitting and resting and and just protecting his own lifestyle god does not call us to be deceptive like that in our service god calls us to be calls you to be authentic serving from the springboard of the gospel serving from serving throughout Difficulty, physical, tired, exhaustion, so that he would be glorified. Why? What does it do? In Paul's mind, and by the Holy Spirit as he tells us this, it shows that the effort that you exert by faith, the effort that you exert shows the worth of the Savior. That's why. The early mornings, the late nights, the preparation that God does, that the people don't even know, the getting up early to bake refreshments and to cook, preparing of the house so that you could minister to the saints, the reaching out to others who don't know Christ. All that, God says, is a mark of a people that God will use. He's doing that for his glory. Secondly, Secondly, serve the body faithfully. Secondly, embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. Embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. And he notice he says in verse 4 and 5, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. We can't skip that too fast. He reminds them that they're family, brethren. He reminds them that they're love, beloved of God. But he says, knowing his choice of you. And so Paul says something very dramatic. You know, when you learn about the doctrines of grace and about election, oftentimes people say, well, you don't know who's elect. You won't know. There's no letter E on the back of someone's neck. And that's true. When you preach the gospel, when you share the gospel, you don't know who's going to respond to his word. 
But Paul says here, reason I, notice he says here, he says, knowing his choice of you, apparently, he's saying you can tell. He's apparently saying you know who is chosen of God. And how does this happen? Well, you know this by number by two things. How they receive the gospel. Do they receive it? Do they receive Jesus Christ in their hearts? And secondly, do their lives change? Do their lives change? And so Paul is identifying and he's telling them, I am absolutely sure that God has been working in your life. Why? Because of the way you serve, because you receive the gospel, and because of the way your life changed. We're going to talk about that as our third point a little later on. But the second here is they receive the gospel. What happens? These folks embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. Why? Notice he says here, Paul says here, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Notice, you got to take this portion. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Let's just hold on to that first and talk about the purity of the gospel. Okay, The reason why I say purity of the gospel, Paul says our gospel. Okay, And we know that the gospel means good news. He says our gospel because it is not, has not been uh, doctored. It's not been changed. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he says to retain the standard of sound words. This is the same gospel. It is, it is the same gospel that saved him. That's why he says it's our gospel. It's the same gospel that saved the Thessalonians. He holds to the purity. He holds to the standard. He believes that this is the only way that people are saved. Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? God made man to reflect and glorify him. Man rebelled against God. Because of the rebellion to a holy God, God judged man and condemned him, giving him the just penalty of his sin. But God is merciful and sent his son, Jesus, to come in the flesh, taking the form of man, living the perfect life, and dying on the cross. If you trust only in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as your sole means of salvation, you will be saved. Your sins will be placed on him. His righteousness will be placed on you by faith. And because you are bound to Christ, when God looks at you, he will declare you righteous with the very righteousness of Christ himself. Your life will now be his and you, you live for him. When you physically die, you will be with him, with Christ in heaven forever and ever. And Paul says this in contradistinction, right? In contrast to any other message and religion. Okay? Notice he says, but the gospel and Jesus and the exclusivity of Christ, how it is uh, portrayed here. In Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, this is a, a famous verse, but in Acts chapter 4, as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Rulers and elders of the people, 
if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, let it be known to all of you. Now notice he says that by, verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Now, verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders by which became the chief cornerstone. And here is Peter himself, okay, another disciple, another disciple of Christ, another apostle. Now he's talking about the importance of believing in the gospel and the gospel alone. He says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, he is stating it boldly that there is no other way someone can be forgiven of their sins. The reason being is if you were to rate all other religions and if you were to put them on a shelf and you were to compare them with Christ, all other religions say, this is what I must do. This is what I must do. This is what I must do to be saved. Whereas Christianity says, not what you must do, but this is what I have done. This is what Jesus has done. And the reason why there could only be salvation in Christ is because Jesus had to pay the penalty for sin. In fact, Jesus even says this in John chapter 14. Look at John chapter 14. Talking about the power of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, exclusivity of the gospel here. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, Thomas is uh, scared that Jesus is going away, but then Jesus says this in verse 6, and now he's going to talk about entrance into fellowship with God the Father, entrance into heaven. And he says this, verse 6, he says, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Notice he says that. And the truth and the life. Okay, let's, let's break that down before we go, before we move on. He says, I am the way. He, he says way, and he doesn't use, he, notice the exact article he uses. He doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, you could choose any other way, that's fine, you'll get there. He says, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. There's no other truth. I define truth. Then he says, and the life, I'm the only bringer of eternal life. Because if you don't know who I am, if you don't receive in me, because no other religion pays for sin. He says, I am the life. And then he says uh, 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 an amazing thing here. He says, just in case you don't understand what I just said. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. That road is very, very narrow. It's not... We are not cutting that road narrow. Christ is cutting that road narrow. Peter has cut that road narrow. And Paul has cut that word narrow. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. And he says that narrow road, you got to understand, the Thessalonians, they were involved. They knew about multiple gods. They had all of their Greek gods and their Roman gods. There was a pantheon of gods. 
And right in that culture, some people say it would be harder to preach in our culture than in theirs. In that same culture of pantheon of gods, Paul comes and he says, I brought our gospel. I brought our good news that the other gods cannot deliver. That this Christ, you can be saved through him. But notice back in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1 Thessalonians did not come to you. He, he said, I did not come to you in gospel for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Yes, it came in word. What does that mean? That there has to be a proclamation of the gospel for the church of God to be used. Okay? This is what authentic gospel work is. Okay? There are many fabricated works okay, of, of the work of God. A lot of people, they'll say, we have a lot of multiple activities, but we remove the gospel because the gospel offends. Or there's multiple things. I just, I just was watching some video clips of a guy who says, you have to fill the church with so many activities and don't talk about sin because sin uh, really upsets people. The Bible says we have to come in the gospel. But he says, I didn't come in word only. You don't come in word only. So we talk about the purity of the gospel. And now we're going to talk about the persuasion of the gospel. The persuasion of the gospel. Okay. That when a man comes to preach the word of God, when there are individuals who are sharing the word of God, what occurs is if we only rely simply on that person speaking, Nothing will happen. Right. He uses these terms. This is what makes the preaching, the teaching. This is what makes the discipleship. This is what makes the Bible studies efficacious. This is what makes gospel work. Work. You get it? How do you know it works? This is how it does it. It says here. But also in power. <clears throat> in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Again, the word there for power, the word there for power a lot of times is translated, the word is dunamis. It's, some people will call it, oh, that's where we get the word dynamite. But it doesn't really capture what that word can do. The word dunamis there, that word for power is a word that explains that it can complete its expected end. In other words, that as the word of God goes forth, the power is infused in it and it penetrates the dull hearts of people. We want that to work. We want our teaching and our preaching to go beyond just words and pathetic notes. We want our preaching and teaching to go into a rhetoric that pierces and convicts and exposes sin. How does it do it? It says here, in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. Now, the power is brought by the Holy Spirit, and we truly believe this. We truly believe this. How can we affect the change of someone's destiny? How can we affect the change of someone's heart such that they grow in holiness? I can't do that. You can't do that. We need spiritual help from on high. 
And he says, in the Holy Spirit. Without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, no amount of eloquence, no amount of illustrations, no amount of cute outlines will ever change the heart of man. We need power from on high. I remember, um, I think I told this story before, but I remember um, when we first started out, I was an intern with Robert Vega back in our old church for our home fellowship group, our Bible study, kind of like what we have, exactly like what we have now, but it wasn't like that. Because when we first started, we had a group of people, and my wife was in there, and uh, my cousin was in there, and what it was, what started to happen is it just became really, really, really bad. We had folks not just leave our Bible study, they left our church. They would come to our church and leave. I mean, they would come to our Bible study and leave our church. I mean, that was, that's how bad it was, right? And I had no clue what was happening, right? Uh, I would study and study and study and study, and nothing was happening. And it was just my wife and my cousin meeting in Vacaville somewhere or Fairfield. And my wife didn't even want to be there. As we were there, as if we were doing that, you know, I was discouraged. I mean, you start a Bible study and no one's coming. I was totally discouraged. So I go to my, uh, our pastor Steve, who has recently been, uh, who has gone with the Lord. And I asked him for some compassion. And so some encouragement, right? He said, uh, he said, and I said, well, Steve, uh, can you help me? What's going on? Why are people leaving? And you know what he said? He said, well, you need to just pray for three months. If nothing happens, just quit. And I said, what? Are, are you going to give me encouragement? You're my pastor. He goes, ah, quit. Just quit. And I didn't understand why he was saying that. Because he already knew. He's already seen this before. He was a an experienced shepherd. Why? He, he wants to see the hand of God work in the hearts of people under the ministry. And the only way, the only way this happens is not your cute studies, your outlines, how many good illustrations you can do. The only way this happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit using the word of God in people's lives. And in other words, he said to us, basically, when I was reading through the lines, a Bible study without the power and work of the Holy Spirit is not worth having. So what does that make you do? It makes you fall on your face and say, God, you've got to work. You've got to take this preaching. You've got to take these lessons. You've got to take this discipleship. You've got to open eyes. You've got to send your spirit. And the power has to be greater than my eloquence. It has to be greater than my argumentation. It has to be greater than my rhetoric. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of people such that they sit there and they're filleted and they know that God is talking to them. What is that? What is that? look like 
I remember as a, even as I just was starting to go to a community Bible church back in Vallejo, as I, as I was going, I would go for, I was going for three months. I would sit in the chair, listen to a sermon, hear the word of God, but still live my own life. Monday through Saturday, live my own life. Sunday, showed up in church. Nice collared shirt, right? Monday through Saturday, live my own life. Lived a debauched life. Lived for only me. Lived for only what I desire to do. Sunday, went to church. Did that for three months. Okay? And every single time as I heard the preaching of God's word, sensed the conviction in my heart. But I fought it. Fought it. As he kept preaching, he kept preaching, and I know, I knew, I knew what happened. I knew that I was a sinner before him, and I knew I was leading a double life. I knew that if I didn't turn to Christ, I'd be condemned to hell forever. And I knew it, but I still fought. I knew that I needed to bow the knee. What happens? Well, it, before, as, as the preaching was going, Steve would say, a sinner can be saved simply by placing their faith in Christ. And then uh, Christ will save them. His righteousness will wash away their sins. And he will be covered forever and ever. And, as, and every time he heard, I heard it, I would think, yes, that is correct. That is true. That's what God does with sinners. Do you understand? It was an abstract idea that was outside of me that was a third person. Do you understand? It wasn't had no bearing on me until one day as he was preaching, I heard the word of God. And it says here, with full conviction, the Bible says confidence, complete certainty, fullness of assurance. As the preacher is preaching, there is a persuasiveness that goes beyond simple human words. There's a persuasiveness that now says it's not simply an abstract idea of a person who is in sin against a holy God who can be forgiven. Now it is me. It is me. I sinned against God. I need forgiveness. I did it. I sinned against him and I need the Savior and I need to place my faith in him. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes. If he doesn't come into your heart and he doesn't flood you with that, it's simply just listening to another lecture. And so as we get together, we pray for this powerful persuasion, this persuasion of the gospel that goes beyond simply our words. Now, the proof of the gospel is, is in fact, that their lives have been changed. They've changed by their humility their example, suffering. And this is how we know. How, this is how we know our, uh, who to partner with. How do you know who are gospel people? Are they gospel men and women? Are they dependent men and women on the Holy Spirit? And are they holy men and women as their lives have been one that would be emulated? So, how do you know uh, what kind of people does God use? Well, Serve the body faithfully. Embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. And lastly, lastly, alter your lives radically. Alter your lives radically. Radically. Notice he says here, you became imitators of us and of the Lord and having received the word in much tribulation with the joy 
of the Holy Spirit. If you were to sum that up, this is the mindset of someone who has been changed by God and desires to be used. That person will say this. This is endurance under trial. He says, he or she will say this, I will endure happily for Jesus. I will endure happily for Jesus. The word there, tribulation, means anxiety, trouble, affliction, oppression, intense pressure. We know that in Acts chapter 17, this is what Paul is talking about. You don't have to turn there, but there was a mob and they started dragging people out. Uh, the, uh, and they stirred up the crowd against them and Silas and Paul had to escape at night. And so he's writing this letter because of the report that Timothy wrote back. But what he says here in verse, um, notice he says here, for you have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, even though it would cost you, the Bible is saying here, even though it's going to cost you, what? Stress, trouble, discomfort, right? Persecution, the job, right? They were losing financially. Some of their property was being seized. Even though it's going to cost you, you do it. He says, and you endure happily for the Lord Jesus with joy. So that you become an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What's happening is their endurance of hard times. You see, their endurance of hard times shows to the world, not just where they're at, shows the world of their value and their love for Christ. Why? Because to the degree that you will suffer for Christ shows the degree of his value and his worth. And as they look in, look in his lives, look in their lives, they're saying, we understand and you have taken this upon yourself just like we have. Uh, I kind of bragged about you at CBC. I did. They asked us, um, how, um, how can we pray for you? I just pray. I just said, pray for our body for strength, spiritual strength. And I said, pray for finances. And I said, because I know that a lot of, uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters, they've taken jobs that are more difficult, jobs that are less pay. They've done this for the gospel. And I said, pray for that. Pray that they would get better jobs. Pray that they would be able to serve more, that they would give more time. And they were great. Let me tell you, can you be encouraged about this. Okay, Are you listening? Okay. I told the church about you guys, and they were encouraged. They said, they took that on? I said, yes, they took it on. For the glory of Christ. Amen? Gladly. What does the text say? With what? Joy. See, it doesn't make sense in the world's eye why you would take a lower job. Doesn't make sense, right? Does it? It makes absolute nonsense. Doesn't make sense that you would lose inequity at a home to go out here to plant a church. It doesn't make sense in the world's eye. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because they would say, do whatever it takes to gather as much money as you possibly can. Correct? 
did this for the glory of Christ. Amen? I think sometimes as Americans, we want everything so easy all the time. I mean, we get upset when, I get upset if there's, if there's a, a two cars in front of me in front of in and out Why is it so long? Why is it so long? I want my double-double. Right? Right? Because why? We're used to things fast. Anything of discomfort we remove. Right? The Bible says you can't do that with gospel work. Why? Because you have to pay the price. Not because it's going to save you. Not because it's going to it's going to change your standing in front of God, but what? To do real gospel work is going to be exhausting, toiling, and you have to pay the price. Physically, mentally, sometimes financially, sometimes with relationships. Right? So, how do you, what, what's the mindset of someone who alters their life radically? They say, I will endure happily for Jesus. Second, Secondly, he says, I, second portion is focus and mission. I will testify boldly for Jesus. And it says here, for the word of the Lord sounded forth from not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. What actually happens is, the word there for sounded forth, we talked about it, is it reverberates, it vibrates, it thunders, it trumpets. Okay, And what happens is the news of this church was told to the north where Philippi and Berea were and to the south where Achaia and the cities were Athens and Corinth. So what happens is the reputation of a church was sounded forth. Now we talk about um, the word there for sounded forth also has that word, uh, has that meaning of reverberation. Okay, Reverberation. And I haven't seen it too much here, but in Vallejo when you... When someone drives right next to you, sometimes they have these big speakers and they just boom, 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 boom. And uh, it's so powerful, it affects the whole area around, correct? I already know it's on its way coming, okay? I don't even have to turn around. I know it's coming. And these cars are just so loud. It's so It reverberates so loud that it shakes your sternum a little bit, right? Boom, 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 right? The Bible calls us. And the Bible says a, a people that is being used by, the, by God for his gospel reverberate, sound forth the gospel. It ripples, the ripples effect. Right? Ripples effect. Now, I was telling, um, I was telling a story about how uh, in 2009 when we were in India, um, there was a guy there who was who stayed for the summer, and he didn't want to go back home. He just stayed for the summer. He says, I have to translate this. And I said, what are you translating? And he goes, I, he goes, I got to translate this whole book. And he's translating it, right? And I started to look at it. And I said, what are you translating? He goes, oh, this book. It's... And this guy, I asked him, where are you from? He says, I'm from Myanmar. I'm from a little tribe. Nobody. And he says, I think it was the Chin tribe or Kachin tribe. I keep forgetting. And I go, oh, okay, I've never heard of that. <laughs> right? Right? And he says, yeah, I'm translating this book so that our tribe can have it. Hmm, I've never been there before. I've never met this, this tribe before. And I asked, okay, what are you translating? And he had a little book. It says, once changed, once saved, 
always change. And that was, that was a book that uh, our late pastor wrote. And he was frantically translating. And I said, why? Because it's, it focuses on Christ. It shows the gospel. It shows how God changes people. And it shows what? Uh, and, he, and he said, and it's short. Right? And as I looked at it, I just kind of traced it. Traced it down. The church would support Steve so he could study, right? He writes a book, puts it on paper or uh, in the computer. And I, I'm, I'm positive he didn't type it, right? So Patty Thompson, who is secretary over there, types it, right? Has it checked over. Renee has it printed, correct? They bind the book, right? Then I bring the book from California all the way to India. And then that book is dispersed to different students. And then one of the students takes the book and translates it. And then now is taking it to Myanmar, to a tribe I've never been to, so that he can preach the gospel and it'll help him to edify the saints over there. And all those from the exchanging of the hands of moving over, of how God starts to work in a people to affect others in Achaia and Macedonia and Myanmar. Do you see that? There are the reverberations. The reverberations. I often laugh and I tell, I tell um, Jamie over there with the camera and Ty, we, all, we often crack up because what we're doing is... Uh, like, I will prepare the sermon. I would pray. You guys would pray for me. I would, cre uh, I would preach the sermon. Jamie would record it. Ty would edit it. Ty would place it on YouTube. Okay? And then we see people from Hong What is it? China viewing it. People from uh, um, India, Canada. Can you believe it? Our little church. And as God is using this church, it is reverberating the gospel. He's using us. I want to be used till I die. Amen. I want us to be spent for his glory. And then, lastly, I will live solely for Jesus. Another life-altering mentality is, I will live solely for Jesus. It says, how you turn back to God from idols. Idols, yes, they were those real, true statues, but idols are anything that take the place of God in your hearts. And so that folks, as they look at you, they look at your lives as people who are not bought, who are not ruled by their own lusts and desires of self-promotion or their own desires of relationships or their own desires of greed or envy or sexual immorality. They're not ruled by that. They're ruled by Christ himself. So, can we be used for God's glory? How, what are the kind of people that God uses? Be the person that God uses. How? By serving the body faithfully. Serve the body faithfully. Embracing the gospel wholeheartedly. 
and altering your life radically, if you need to make cuts in your life, changing your schedule in your life, so that you will show a life that is not bought by your idols. Okay? Now, if you don't know Christ and you're still on this journey, please consider his claims. He will save you from your sins. If you are saved, but you're not a committed member to this church, I encourage you to join. It's a gospel-centered, great commission-following, disciple-making missions church. Be a part of this great endeavor in the universe, the greatest endeavor in the universe to make disciples of all nations. And lastly, if you are a part of this church, I want to encourage you to excel still more. Do not sit on your laurels. Let's see if RBC in the future could plant churches. Let's see what kind of missionary support. Let's see what kind of training we can do. Let's be reverberations of the gospel. Let us be sounded forth and not simply affect our own lives here, but those of others for God's kingdom and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have your word and that it is challenging. Thank you that we can praise you. Thank you that you will be glorified by our lives. Help us to be people who serve faithfully, who are dependent and embrace the gospel. Help us to change our lives radically, to suffer, to testify, and to deny idols in our life for your glory. God, change our hearts. If there are areas where we have slipped, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to confess and repent. Use us for your glory, we pray. Help us now to worship you as we celebrate in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.